0: You're listening to Work Tape, episode nine.
1: Welcome to the Worktape podcast. I am one of your hosts, Mitchell Palmer, looking like where's Waldo uh, with <laughs> the uh, pit today. Next to me, of course, uh, is Isaac Grover. And um, What's up, guys? Once again, some more new music finally coming our way. Um, it's about time, honestly, uh, with 2020 being such a lull in terms of music from big artists. The fact that we're getting some new music from artists of the past, as well as kind of the current chart toppers. Um, it's definitely very, very interesting. And uh, the biggest example is The Weeknd uh, with his single, Take My Breath, doubling down on the 80s sound. Very much so. It's... You know, very disco, very Giorgio Moroder, like cocaine and rollerblades kind of music here. I'm assuming you liked it a lot? Yeah, uh, I enjoy it. And I think the reason I enjoy it is because The weekend. ever since he started in music, really, he's been getting constant comparisons to Michael Jackson in terms of his vocal timbre um, and overall way that he's approaching music. It's basically if Michael Jackson decided to sing about hard drugs and substances, you basically get The Weeknd. And, you know, in that sense, he did pioneer his own dark, chilled, ambient R&B that everybody else was kind of biting off of once he started doing it. Him coming out of Toronto, of course, that was known as the Toronto sound. What's your least favorite work by him? The Weeknd? That's a very good question because... He's a very interesting artist in the sense that he dropped music on SoundCloud free. So so the first three of his projects were completely free um, until he got picked up by Drake and then um, got some clout and remastered those three projects to put out Trilogy, which by many Weekend fans is the pinnacle of his artistic endeavors. Okay. Um, Personally, I think the album Beauty Behind the Madness that he put out which while having some great chart toppers like Can't Feel My Face. Yeah. In a one way, it was different than what was out on pop radio. But in a way, I felt like it was buying into the trends a little too much um, until he put out Starboy, which hinted at some kind of more electronic, slightly old school flavor with um, his collaboration with Daft Punk on those records. And then, of course, After Hours and now this new single really kind of going completely in with the 80s sound and really capitalizing it and making it his own. I know uh, he's really committed to that story. Yeah. Well, the narrative for sure. Which kind of brings
0: me to this question. Can you finish any of those videos? Because they get kind of gruesome.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I finish them mostly because it's pretty obvious, at least from my perception and whatnot, is that he's paying homage to previous films and previous works um, and kind of making Namely it mainly horror. Yeah, a lot of horror films, yeah. but also some things like that recent Joker movie, Uncut Gems, um, Raging Bull, you know, a lot of those quote unquote edgier, but very prolific movies in the sense that some of those, you know, being multiple decades old, standing the test of time. As a matter of fact, some of those are viewed more highly now than when they were previously released. And he's still continuing this narrative thing because the whole idea of the after hours is that it's what happens right. in the after hours of the night.
0: <laughs> it looks like Ed Sheeran's trying to get in on that a little bit.
1: Yeah, with that vampire. To no avail, right? No, I, 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 I Ed Sheeran just, I, I can't. I mean, we, we talked a little bit about the Ed Sheeran single. So you think he started out pretty well, but he's so far ending up in a weird space. Ed Sheeran is?
0: Yeah. Is yes. you kind of say
1: that? Yeah. Yes.
0: That's what I feel I like.
1: mean, and, and that kind of is a really good segue into the idea of a consistent quality control, something that we touched on. There it is. In the last installment. Um, Ed Sheeran is a really interesting example because he came in at a time, honestly, in popular music that was a bit weird, like 2011, 2012. You had this whole thing where it was like a bit.
0: It was yeah. super weird.
1: You had this whole thing where it was like you had some great hip hop being made, like Kendrick's Good Kid, Mad City came out in 2012. You know, so many of those groundbreaking albums came out. But then in the Billboard sense, you had this battle going on between more independent folk artists. And I then, hated the Billboard. And more then the club. Then and then the now. And then the club artists too. So yeah. so. When you looked at the charts in like 2012, in the top 10, you could have you know Mumford and Sons with like I don't know um, Kesha or something, like <laughs> like like oh, how true that was, like like exactly, <laughs> or or you know like club artists, th- those that were making specifically club music because you know yeah. there is. There was that big thing too in 2012 where we all thought the world was gonna end because of that Mayan calendar. Oh my goodness That Mayan calendar thing. Remember
0: like every song had like the skies falling? Oh I
1: that was probably yeah. one of my
0: least favorite things about that time.
1: Or, or I think about the band fun with um Jack Antonoff Who weren't so fun.
0: Yeah. They but were cheesy, dude. I'm sorry, were, dude. They were they were I, bad. I mean, but
1: you can escape tonight.
0: So We are young. They were, I honestly thought they were bad. I hated... I, they were never fun to me. But I liked the <laughs> format. The format was chill.
1: The format and I, we hey.
0: <laughs> That's just Did fair. you like the format?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I did. Yeah. I liked... You know what? I had to give Fun a fair amount of respect because... <laughs> They're fine. Be, because actually, they were, they were a trio. I mean, there wasn't too many, like, big trios at the time. So, like, I have to give them a little bit of respect for that. And then Jack Ontov kind of went on to... Bleachers? Bleachers, yes. Bleachers was chill. Yeah. I like and Bleachers. Th- as a matter of fact, they put out, he put out a new record under Bleachers. Um, I'm not surprised. I actually did like Bleachers. A new, yeah, he put out a new record. Fun was a band
0: that always struck me as kind of annoying and I didn't like them, but like... Was it that lead singer? Was it Nate Ruiz? I didn't like the... Yeah, I didn't like the style, but when I actually tried listening to the music, it was actually pretty good. It just... They had like high potential, but the reality was bad. Hipsters love them.
1: I know hip, they were, know. they were kind of like the band. If you were, <laughs> if you were a hipster at the time, they, that's amongst, what I
0: thought when imagine dragons was pretty decent.
1: Yeah. But even imagine dragons kind of was more mainstream, even in their early, yeah, they're, yeah, because actually mainstream. that's kind of when night visions came out was like 2012, 2013, that that breakthrough record for imagine dragons came out about that time too, which that album, if you think about it encapsulates that whole thing I was talking about with this whole billboard thing where you had, on one hand, these folky, independent, stomp box, stomp and clap. Remember the line,
0: the city never, what was
1: it? It's I... time to begin, isn't okay, it? Okay, but that one played on
0: the, the American authors, that played on. Oh, American authors. No, but But that song by Imagine Dragons yeah. played into that indie folk pop. American authors wish they were Imagine
1: Dragons, let's be honest. Right,
0: but that was Imagine Dragons, like, that was like their. Y- yeah,
1: or On Top of the World, you know, I'm on yeah. top of the world. It. Oh my God. I'm on gosh, top of the dude. world. It.
0: Both of those tracks, dude. I mean, it was, they're I actually like them. I both. actually, I like On Top of the World. But, I like that song. But to be fair, that was like the height of that
1: movement. Oh, most definitely.
0: One of the heights. Yeah, and I didn't think that movement was really that strong. I mean, Mumford and I mean,
1: Mumford and Sons kind of kicked it off like a few years prior with that yeah, with yeah, that album with with like, you know, the <laughs> the ca- with the cave and like little lion man and stuff. <laughs> Actually, you know, speaking of Mumford and Sons, they got parodied so hard by a YouTube group named The Key of Awesome that that's what I think forced them to go electric because this parody video nailed like every trope <laughs> Every aspect of their sound, right down to the the that and the whole thing and the banjos, the A's and O's in the chorus, where back to
0: the mediocre cone players, <laughs> right, exa- exactly
1: exactly, <laughs> so bad. And then right after that, like literally right after that, they went electric. Mumford and Sons mm-hmm. went went electric, and they Which went.
0: We talked about that like I don't know how many podcasts ago. I, like, I told you I I did say I liked it.
1: Yeah, I did too, actually. It was a little late,
0: but I like it. I
1: did too. I, I kind of, it actually kind of worked. I mean, they got a lot of hate for that Electric album, but there was a few songs on it that were really good. Um, Believe is a, is a really good song on, on that record. Kind of has a little cold play, but I think it's because of Marcus Mumford's voice. He does have a distinct voice. Like, say what you will about the band. Like, he's a good singer. He has a distinct voice. He's a great
0: singer, but a lot of great singers like Fun. He's a pretty good singer. Yeah, I just hate the idea of their music when they actually execute it.
1: Yeah, well, Nate Ruess, I think think he pulled a lot from like Freddie Mercury. And I think he kind of thought like, well, this Fun could be the new Queen, maybe, in the sense that they had massive chart success.
0: Um, Actually, I've noticed a lot of bands with really good singers. Yeah. A lot of them, I hate their music. Not all of them, because there's some, you know, I'm not big on Queen, but I'm starting to really like Queen because Queen's pretty amazing. I just oh, yeah. never really got onto them. But they're probably a good example of a band where the singer's amazing. Yeah. And their music is actually really good.
1: Freddie's goaded as a right. singer. No question. But there
0: are some bands, and I would even say a lot of bands, where the singer is great, but their music, it's almost either too over the top where it loses me or mm-hmm. it's
1: boring. Which... I drop an example of that. What's, what you got?
0: Tonight. Uh, oh, was it? Fun, we are, yeah. fun. Yeah, exactly. That was a good example of that where okay. he's great. Yeah. Musically, I was
1: just like, uh it, it's, it's a little formulaic. It was very formulaic. It was, and I hated it it. It, it. it was almost like they looked and they were like, what are the elements that are going to get us a billboard hit? It made me prefer One Direction. Oh, seriously. <laughs> I'm not even, I'm not joking, man. Oh, man. Why? Because One Direction was actually not boring in comparison. Yeah. At least like... they were more uppity. That's true. And they kind of did like, they were the big proprietors of the boy band Resurgence because that was the whole thing. It started with Boys to Men, actually. Boys to Men was, you know, laid the groundwork for the original. Much. Yeah, they laid the groundwork for everybody else. They and preceded,
0: this is a dumb question, but I don't care if I get roasted. Go they ahead. Pre- they preceded Backstreet Boys and all that yes. stuff, right? Yeah,
1: okay. Y- yes. Because Boys to Men was like late 80s, early 90s. Gotcha. Yeah, if you want to go even deeper than that, New Edition preceded Boys to Men. So the way that it worked was you know, of course, you had all the Motown groups, um, singing groups, Temptations, Four Tops. Okay, you know, well, those four,
0: technically are like the original. The, the, they really, they really are. Da, 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 they really are, da, 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 da. and
1: and and they by far are are some of the best. No question. Like Temptations is Temptations, Four Tops, all that stuff. Excellent. Four Seasons. <laughs> yeah, Frankie Valley, exactly. Yeah, and then of course doo wop groups even before then, the freshmen. So like, doo
0: wop really to me is or those uh barber shop. Yeah, like those were, I think, the pioneers to that.
1: Right, and then boy band sound. and then it was just an evolution after
0: that. Or even the, even the girls like Supremes. Yes, the Supremes are amazing.
1: Yes, yeah, Martha Vandellas, you know that that kind of thing. But yeah, I mean, you had that whole thing, and it was it was an evolution, and so doo-wop, barbershop quartets. So the boys uh,
0: to men era, and I guess going into Backstreet Boys and NSYNC, ties in with technically the Spice Girls or yeah bands before.
1: That's right, the Spice Girls. Uh, that's, that's right. I mean, that was, that was all happening around the same time. Although this might be a little brash, but basically some of these boy bands like Backstreet Boys and 90 Degrees and NSYNC, they were like the white equivalent to the Backstreet Boys. <laughs> no, I'm serious. They absolutely were. They were the white community's response to the Backstreet Boys <laughs> Because here's the, because here's the thing that had to happen. So, boys to men, as and don't take this in any horrible way at all. I'm, I'm no. Please take it horribly, guys. <laughs> no, no, go on. I'm not gonna get canceled for that. <laughs> no, don't cancel. You're gonna go. Out, don't don't gonna cancel go me out for that. A, you're
0: not gonna go I'm out without spitting, a bang. I'm
1: just, I'm just, I'm <laughs> just spitting the truth here. Okay, Well, spit away. Here's the, here's the deal. Boys to men, they had to cross over. That's the difference. They had to cross over because you know there was kind of the R and B. You know, cont- uh, like, and I hate the fact that they use this word to describe it, but the urban chart, you know, people are going to say mayonnaise. No, <laughs> no. There was the urban contemporary charts gotcha. at the time, which they really need to phase that out. And <laughs> and the Recording Academy, stop having that as a category for an award <laughs> where you're just basically lumping music by black artists into one category. That's that's not exactly. It is annoying, but. It really is. Um, yeah. So anyway. They had those charts, and then you had the Billboard charts. Mm -hmm. So in order for Backstreet, or not Backstreet Boys, excuse me, for Boys to Men, they were charting urban contemporary R&B charts, no problem. But in order to get that mass appeal, they had to then cross over even further. Unlike a lot of these groups like Backstreet Boys, 98 Degrees, in sync, that the minute they dropped a single, it's already on the Hot 100 chart. That's what I'm trying to tell you. I'm not trying to be discriminatory or divisive in any way. I'm just telling you the reality of the music industry at that time, that there was, for some artists, a harder process for them to get that mass appeal because they had to not only chart in their respective community, but then they also had to get enough traction to where Billboard was like, oh, people are actually listening to this. Let's put it on
0: the charts. So here's another weird thing. Why the heck do people talk about crossover artists like it's a new thing? I, I, people, don't, I don't I don't really under,
1: I don't really understand it either
0: because because they're, they're like oh the latest crossover artists like you do realize that that's been going on for a long
1: time and people act like it's unique it's weird as a matter of fact it's kind of pushing towards another thing I was reading I about feel like it's
0: normal I feel if like it's it, actually a normal part of the
1: industry right man we're on something this is good I know uh, this is that watery drink that's that's right <laughs> the coffee y'all Caffeine's very important But that was something I'm going to touch on, which is I read this article. I think it was by Rolling Stone, Billboard, or one of the big music publications. Being genreless is more of a thing now than really at any point in history. There's a lot of artists and a lot of movements where they're simply not being boxed in to genres anymore. Take somebody like Billie Eilish. By default and by chart position, she's going to be categorized as a pop artist. But if you listen, it's alternative pop, right? But alternative's gone mainstream now. That's the thing that's really interesting is that alternative music, you know, started off as what it described, a alternative, a different different approach, a a diversion from whatever was popular. Now alternative just means pop music, but quirkier. Yeah. And so much of what's actually ruling just the regular pop chart is alternative music. So, I feel like I think I talked about
0: this. I don't know if I talked about it with you or it was off camera with someone else, which most likely that happened. Yeah, probably. But But I was noticing that alternative was that it was an alternative to the mainstream, right? Right. It was quirkier in nature, it was more off kilter. Typically, most of the worst singers were in that category. And I liked it because (laughs) of the character that that music gave. But then by Nirvana's time, it basically got pushed into the mainstream. That's correct. And since then, alternative has been a normal part of our music lives, so to speak. Right. To the point where... In a
1: popular music sense, that is. Right. To even where most of the time I look at, you know, alternative artists and I'm like, are you really alternative though? Like, are you really that distinct It is overused. Absolutely. It
0: is overused.
1: But let's not forget... The styles
0: that that came from, like, I can tell when an artist is alternative. I'm like, okay. okay, definitely. Like, sure. I'm not big on her, but even Melanie Martinez. Okay. I can hear that. You yeah. Know? Alternative and experimental tend to be used interchangeably. Mm-hmm. But alternative essentially is a more experimental style of music. Really, it is. Versus yeah. whatever it was and is the mainstream. Correct. But again, like you're saying, alternative can just become yeah. mainstream. But I still think it's a defined style.
1: No, I do. I do too. I, I I'm not taking any artistic merit from alternative artists in that sense. I'm just saying that the general tide of the music industry, so to speak, is to the point where alternative is actually really topping a lot of charts right it's now. It's a bona fide category. Correct. Yeah. That's what I. That's what I. Mean. But I mean, I think that kind of goes back to the whole genreless thing too, in the sense that many of these artists. More so now than really, I think, at any point are just being refused to be boxed in, which I think is actually something that's really, really good. I think that that freedom and the lessening the burden of being boxed into a particular genre or sound or to, you know, essentially be pigeonholed into doing kind of the same thing over and over again, I think that is where you get some really interesting works and you get some really great things. That Billie Eilish album, I I listened to a fair amount of it since we met up last. And there's a lot of stuff on there, which I didn't expect, like some of the chord progressions and some of the inspiration that she took, especially from like very old school, like American standard songbook type things from the 40s or the 50s even. Was this in Happily? Yeah. Yeah. I still haven't listened to it. Yeah, it's all over it. And then some of the stuff on there, from what I've heard anyway, it's almost kind of like the two-for-one thing, where you have the first half of this song be this really slow, drawn-out, jazz, old-timey, influenced kind of thing. But of course, with it being Billy, she's going to have that distinctive whisper-rasp thing that she's doing. And then it switches up halfway through it and becomes a rock anthem that's you know very reminiscent of something that maybe... Cobain would have done, which is why I understood the comparison of Billie Eilish as this generation's Cobain, because in that sense, and in terms of- People took it too literally. Definitely.
0: Way too literally. Again, it's the rock group. (laughs) Right. She sounds nothing like Kurt. They never
1: said she sounded like Kurt. They're talking about the influence. That's right. And they're talking about the the (laughs) way that she's shaping the generation right now and the going against the grain nature- Of a lot of those things.
0: Essentially the new alternative, if you really want to think about it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you see that a lot, especially like with people who are now all of a sudden coming off of TikTok and Instagram and some of these social media influencers who are going ahead and and making a music career too. Mm -hmm. Bella Porch is a great example. Like I haven't heard too many things that sound like Bella Porch is doing. Kind of sounded like a Disney song a little bit. Yeah. Like, well, I notice a lot of artists are actually back to kind of with The weekend,
0: Billie Eilish, and even Bella. Yeah. That horror aesthetic. Yeah, kind of.
1: It's a very interesting thing.
0: It's not my bag at all, but it's very noticeable. It's like a perpetual Halloween artist.
1: Yeah, like Bella's, like, a, <laughs> like it's a little too early in Bella's career to, like, really say if she's going to go completely into that. No, no,
0: no, but still playing into that culture.
1: Oh, yeah, this, de- definitely. At least this part of her career, right? Yeah. She's doing it. Sure, but that's not necessarily, like, an entirely new thing either. M- Michael Jackson with Thriller.
0: It's funny because I knew you were going to mention that because I was like, well, yes, I do realize Michael Jackson did it. However, it being a thing, like a staple, like a normal regular thing, absolutely. The horror aesthetic and pop musicians is ever increasing. I mean, even in the aughts, we weren't really, we weren't
1: doing well, that. Well, you, I mean, you had some you had some groups like Icy Key or something like that. No,
0: or, but back in the odds we were doing like the Spice like Emin- Girls, we're doing oh, uh, yeah. Britney Spears. That horror aesthetic wasn't a big thing,
1: but you did have Eminem kind of do a little bit of it on like some of his early records. Sure, but on like his early records, yeah, some yeah, some Eminem. Think
0: about it with uh, what's her name? Not Taylor. Uh, Katy Perry. Yeah, I wouldn't say Katy Perry was all in on this vibe, but she was bringing a quirky vibe back to pop that did not exist in the 80s.
1: Almost definitely, and that's why Katy Perry the think- over the top
0: dress, the the yeah. contrasting colors. Yeah. And then up until now, I'm saying that horror vibe has been increasing. Oh, for I sure,
1: I, I definitely agree with that. No question. I mean, though, you know, the weekend in mainstream, like in mainstream, not just I, like, no, yeah, no, I know. And the the weekend definitely pushed that forward too, with that after hours thing. Really more in the visuals, and of course the album cover, right? Of course, but I wonder some of that may be. The fact that some of those artists perhaps were inspired by those horror films. But I almost wonder how much of that is reflecting of the time that we're in. 90s and the Ots were kind of vanilla. We've
0: got to be honest.
1: Well. Compared to now. Well, the late 90s were. The early 90s and the mid 90s, I would say, were very angsty. Sure, sure, and sure. very. But I'm basically going to
0: talk about arts culture. Arts culture yeah. with the late 90s, which counts. Yeah. Um, were really vanilla. Absolutely. Even though we had unique artists like Eminem, overall, people were very. I mean, yeah, Timbaland has really unique sound. He was sure. kind of, He was changing the game as well. Yeah, But for the most part, your average pop was very vanilla and just...
1: Well, I think it was because people wanted to, like, kind of escape from some of the things that the were... 80s that traumatized them or what? <laughs> yeah, that was happening at the <laughs> time. That was happening at the time. Because the 80s
0: were weird,
1: dude. Well, no, not even <laughs> that. But, like, if you think about, like, the early 2000s, I mean, 9-11 happened in 2001. So, like... People didn't want like super serious music. And I mean, actually, in a, a way, too, like, you know, the economy, despite all that, the economy was kind of still booming. So that kind of ushered in like the Bling era. <laughs> ushered. Yes. A, a, a very popular artist as well of the early 2000s. <laughs> that, that just works great. But no, and he was very much a part of this. He was yeah. very much a part of that like Bling era, that excess and whatnot. And you really had a lot of that until 08, where that like economic crash happened. And then, you know, there was a little bit of a lull. And then you had some more partying again. And then now with pandemic setting in last year um, and really changing up a lot of things. But also there were some things that happened before that. Mm -hmm. I wonder how much of this aesthetic that's being adopted is really a reflection of those times, of our times now. Oh, yeah, that's true. Of our times now. In the sense that things in some respects are kind of dark and they're kind of like, you know. we.
0: Well, I would say Katy Perry, K- Katy Perry. Wow. I want to cut that Katy out. Katy
1: Perry sounds like the wish <laughs> version of Katy Perry. No, that you I'll, couldn't I'll afford. I'll keep that in. You couldn't afford <laughs> Katy Perry. So you got Katy Perry instead. That's what so you got. So we had Katy Perry. We also
0: had Kesha, which also played into that as well. Yeah. Probably not as, I don't know. She can be a little bit over the top, but I don't think as far as Katy Perry did because she really committed to her wardrobe. Yeah, most definitely. And because of Katy Perry, we have the likes of the wardrobes of like, um, I would still say it leads into what Bella's doing. But again, Melanie Martinez, I don't know that blue haired girl on TikTok, but we don't need to talk about her. No, um, we, we don't got to do it. But you know what I mean? Like once you see that artist in your mind, you see all these other ones that are doing it. Oh, sure. It. Uh, Doja is doing it. Doja, yeah. Yeah. Even um, Nicki Minaj was also a. Oh, uh, yeah. She was a pioneer for this. Mm-hmm. Well, and still is kind of like doing it. No, but she's a pioneer. She was oh, yeah. she was one of those people popularizing the over the top wardrobe, a lot of crazy colors. Yes. Not as much a creep aesthetic, but still, I could kind of hear it. A little bit. It. Yeah. But there's a reason why Bella is here today as the way she is.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, and you know that's that pays the, huge homage to those artists. Well, and that's the thing that we were talking about too, with how much overlap you might have from like Lord and then Billie Eilish and like Olivia Rodrigo filling that same right thing too. So that's one thing that's that's pretty interesting. Is you're talking about new music? You know, someone who hasn't really had the spotlight
0: for a while, but she's kind of back. What's up, Alessia Cara?
1: Alessia Cara, really? Yeah. I really, you, you got to let me in on this. How, how so? Like, let Sweet
0: Dreams was her um, latest single. Uh huh. I listened to it and lo and behold, it was a trap beat. Right. Right. I, can, that we, was... can we talk about how overly easily impressed Gen Z and Generation Alpha are with a beat on everything? Sure. No, it, it's become. Or it... slowing it down.
1: Yeah. Right. You know, some people were talking about, like, you know, characteristics, and or sonic traits of eras. Our era is definitely that. Our era is definitely trap-inspired instrumentation, heavy 808s, synth bass, but sub-bass too. Dude, beats are cool, but you don't need to put on everything. No. No, absolutely not. You know, so many artists have been talking about how they're predicting that there's going to be some sort of seismic shift that's going to actually favor live instrumentation. I actually agree with you. I think people are going to get so fed up with beats, they're going to bastardize
0: them and they're going to be gone and we're going to be on to something else.
1: Right. And there's going to be the, the idea of live instrumentation coming back into the forefront because, you know. So learning the instruments will help me in the future. Yeah. Having a basis in music. Say goodbye to your loops. Ha- having a basis in music theory definitely helps. That you bought off
0: Splice. Music theory. <laughs> they're cool. I actually use one shots in Splice, but I actually. Yeah purposefully don't use the samples because I can just make my own. And I don't want to deal with another person using that same royalty-free splice sample and then sue me. It's like, dude, I'm just going to make my own.
1: Right, and we can talk about that too in the sense of the prevalence and rise of sample packs, basically strung... (laughs) Is it cheating? Yeah, these strung together, crafted for you sample packs with a lot of them giving you the option of even getting the individual stems. Mostly that was a response just to the fact that instead of having to sample established records and worrying about that loophole of getting the actual artist clearance, which can take forever, you know, the sample packs were... A solution. A, yeah, A to avoid that, but B to also give the producers a shot and really showcase hmm, their one shot. Yeah, their artistic and their art their artistic endeavors. And I was, you know, saying that sometimes sample packs or even listening to tight beats or whatever can kind of get you out of a writer's block or get you out of a creative rut. Right, because um, they
0: inspire you. Even if you're not going to use them, they inspire you. I mean, I hear some producers where they use the loops just right out of the box. Yeah. And then they replace it or just take it out right? because they use it as training wheels for the track that they're building it.
1: Yeah. And even if they keep same chords, they'll do live playing or they'll switch it up a little bit. And that's kind of the type of sampling that I personally really like. So we approve of splice. It has
0: some really good benefits. Yeah.
1: I, I approve of the type of sampling where maybe you are taking like an individual element or something and you're kind of using it as a base to get started and then you're building on top of it. Even John Mayer has used some samples in some of his recent stuff. Um, New Light was built on a sample that he got from No ID, um, and it was just the little synth arpeggiated part, and then he just built the rest of the track underneath of that. And I'm like, that's kind of the sampling that I like, where you know, you're know you just taking an element to get you started, and then you're reworking Reimagining it. it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I, I do feel it coming, too, in terms of favoring the live instrumentation as that breath of fresh air. Um, I do think that just because of its prevalence on pop charts and whatnot, that you still will see like kind of the trap influence for the rest of this year and maybe even going a bit into next. But I do think that especially if the right artists can push more live instrumentation forward, I think you will start to see more of that. I mean, NPR's Tiny Desk is a really good example of people favoring the live instrumentation over the studio recording because... You look on artists or whatever, and you look at their comment sections, and they say things along the lines of, I want to listen to this. I want this on an album or on my Spotify playlist. This is actually vastly superior to what they did with the studio version. So I think there's always going to be that there. I think whether or not it's going to transcend mainstream music as we know it, or really rather when it's going to transcend mainstream music again, who knows? I think somebody has to get the ball rolling with it whether that's one of us, whether that's somebody else, somebody's got to do it. And once that happens and, you know, it really is showcased of like, hey, you know, you know, this is really interesting. This is a breath of fresh air. Then I think a lot of people are going to are going to go ahead and jump on it, too, and get more into that. And I think it's going to shift like that. I think it's almost like a, a little bit of like a teeter totter situation, sort of a balancing act. Yeah. Here's trap right now. It's gonna go live instrumentation, then it's gonna go back, and 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 it's gonna keep just doing that. Because, you know, we're pushing in terms of what we can do musically, you know, with a lot of tech and whatnot. So tech I think is gonna be implemented still. It just really, really depends. But I noticed the nineties were a
0: rebellion to that overproduced sound. Yeah. And then by the aughts, I noticed there's still a higher emphasis on real instruments versus now. Yeah. But it going really digital. Yes. And then by the late aughts, it was established like trap was the thing, like we're going to be using all these synthesized sounds and it's going to be programmed.
1: Yeah, the the stuff in like the aughts was like very sterile. Like It was pretty sterile. You know, the CD was introduced like late 80s, early 90s, but didn't really become a true standard of listening to a lot of music until late 90s, early 2000s. And, you know, I think producers decided, oh, we we need to make music that's optimized for like the CD listening generation because this was still before iTunes and like truly digital consumption of music happened. But I mean, even with iTunes in 0405, you had people still accounting for that. And of course, Loudness Wars, which is kind of one of the worst periods, mixing and mastering music, in my opinion. When- I know it
0: kind of devalued some things in the music industry, but to be fair, I think that the evolution of any sort of business, yeah. any sort of industry is actually not a bad thing.
1: No. Because it's
0: inevitable, first off.
1: You want to try new risks. Yeah.
0: Right. So I take that back, actually. I actually like the comeuppance of the uh, iPod. Yeah. I thought it was kind of cool when that first came out and when that was first publicized and everyone's like, oh, dude, you can fit several thousand songs in your pocket and it's pretty cool GUI.
1: Yes. It's very usable. Like the the original scroll wheel in terms of that, I think was was, like, that was amazing. I think that was genius. Personal. I think that was genius. That scroll wheel is, is genius. And the way that they had it to where it was very,
0: very accessible. Those things still pop. They look super cool. Like to me, that's like a timeless piece of hardware.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I mean, you know, it, it's very I much... I aged better than a 90s computer. Yeah, <laughs> in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways, I would agree with you. It has. And it, you're seeing more of that too. And I, I know we've touched on this as well in terms of like technology coming into music. But that spatial audio might really be a big thing. Still, I mean, I know that we talked about whether or not it's going to be a gimmick or whether it's going to be something that could really become standard. But I think that that's more along the lines of the risk that you were talking about of the thing of an evolution of the listening experience, trying to incorporate more of that surround into music mixes and treating it like you are like, you know, watching a film or something, you know, and bands and whatnot have even decided to re-release albums in a stereo format, like a 5.1 stereo format. Coldplay did it. Head Full of Dreams you can listen to in like 5.1. 'Cause they re-released it to this it, I didn't even know. To make it more surround. So I think that's kind of an evolution that might be really interesting to see. Like I said, whether or not that becomes um a standard the norm or yeah. Whatever. It's really early to tell just because it's so early in its iteration. And personally I think it's only gonna get more streamlined, but You know, I I could see potentially having that feature be standard on a lot of devices and then having a lot of people listen to their albums in that way as well. So there's definitely a lot to be said about the evolution of things. I do think some of the best sounding music has actually kind of come out from like 2010s through the 2020s, though. Some people have said like, oh, the mixing and mastering is so bad or whatever. But I'm like, not really. I think if you look at some of the ones that have really lasted, like actually it sounds pretty good.
0: So it's probably something that you like, but a lot of other people probably don't like. Yeah. Yeah. Are you kind of leaning more into the lo-fi vibe in your head? Um, Is that why? Because some people are going to say objectively or subjectively, sorry, it sounds bad.
1: Well, no, not necessarily. I think it's just people have super high regard for a lot of music that was made pre-2000s and pre-2010s for like withstanding test of time or whatever and, and, and sounding like it could have been made yesterday. And I think that there's a fair amount of tracks just from the actual listening and consumption experience that have been made within these last 10 years that still sound really really good. And I think that's still going to happen, but I I do you touched on the lo-fi thing and I feel like the lo-fi thing mostly from the internet culture that surrounded lo-fi, but also just as an artistic expression. I see that still happening too. I see more people continuing to use that kind of aesthetic as well. Maybe almost blending the two, maybe having parts of a record be intentionally lower fidelity just to contrast it with something really high fidelity. I can see that happening as kind of an artistic expression. So that's kind of where I stand on on that in terms of the listening experience. So solid. Yeah. Speaking of lo-fi, even though it's not
0: completely lo-fi, I checked out Sunk. Who? Oh, Sant. It's yeah. Sant, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, Sant is the artist. Saint yeah. with the E at the end? Yeah, Sant. I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Sant. Yeah, so uh, he's really good. Yes, and uh, that's definitely a, a music recommendation for y'all out there. Sant. S A I N T. And I've been nerding out on these UK artists.
0: Yes. They've been doing And some... not just in a rock sense, because I always nerd out about the UK rock, mm. but I got to be honest, I never really delved too much into UK rap. Yeah. And I think in a lot of applications, well, one person argued with me. He's like, dude, it's not that good. And I'm like, okay, when they hit, they hit. When they miss, they miss. Right. But let's go back to when they hit. Right. Because when they hit, they hit hard.
1: Oh, yeah, most definitely. And no, is really good. He has this kind of, it's very chill. It's very. He's a
0: definition of vibey.
1: Very much so. It's a lot of atmospheric music. Personally, I think that it's just a matter of time before us in the States catch on to him because I think once the rest of the world catches on, I think he could be really big for that specific type of sound. Quiet Storm 90s sounding synths, Mm -hmm. but then paired with the hard-hitting 808s, And maybe a little bit of drill influence, but not a ton. Not too too much. But I I think that's kind of why- I didn't hear any grime. I didn't hear any of that stuff. No, but that's, I think, kind of the reason why I favor him a lot more than, say, some UK artists in the sense that he is diverging from that. Oh, he's separating himself
0: from his contemporaries, whoever those are. Correct, At least
1: the contemporaries in his area. Correct, yes. Granted, there are people who have really done the whole drill grime thing to tremendous effect, such as Skepta. As someone who's done that to a really, really good effect. And I have to give him a lot of respect for that. But I I do think that some of the stuff that they're conjuring up across the pond is really quite interesting. And I think that personally, I'd like to, in the case of SANT or some of these other things, I'd like to see that be a more consistent trend moving forward. Because I don't know. I felt like with a lot of his music, it's kind of a really good balance of vintage old school. The,
0: the tone of his voice is really cool. I yeah. don't know what mic he's using, but um, yeah. I really dig his vibe. It's It's got like a smooth, kind of reminds me of coffee with cream, you know, it's, it's just like a nice cafe kind of vibe. Yeah, really. Hopefully is. that's not an insult because no. I think that his music is built for bigger audiences as well, but he really is like a it's a vibe thing. It's, it's almost kind of a sound you don't want. You kind of don't want him to become too commercial. Not gonna lie.
1: But yeah, kind of I mean, reminds me of early Kendrick. Okay, wow, that's high regards. Well, I, no, I, 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 agree, <laughs> I mean, I agree with you. I, am right, not, I'm agree not saying you.
0: he is, but let's be fair. You know, he's not in the place that Kendrick is. Right. They all had to start somewhere. Yeah. I can take him seriously, like I take Kendrick seriously.
1: Right. And is it because of that more independent status? Yeah. Kind of take that's him. That's a big part of it. Well, I, I it just
0: sounds mature.
1: Right. I agree. That's probably the word I was looking for. I agree with that. And, you know, this brings up a really good conversation, a really good point of artists who did have something that's refreshingly new that either stayed more or less independent, but in really the case of this conversation, ones that did become mainstream and how it changed over time. There's a lot of examples of that where, you know, you have bands, artists, whoever. That came out with something really fresh, you know, for the early part of their career kind of went a pretty substantial amount of time without really any real big exposure. And then as soon as everybody else caught on, then there was like this big paradigm shift and kind of happened with Kendrick. But I mean, I think Kendrick's done a really good job of still keeping that integrity. Maintaining is cool. Yeah, mate. I
0: actually agree with you on that. I kind of feel the same. I think it's funny that we're gonna mention this name again. I think Kanye is the same too. Yeah, Kanye's I think kept it. That's why we take these people seriously because of that.
1: Yeah, Kanye's kept it. But I mean, if you want a lot of artists fall off. Oh yeah, so many of them. Oh yeah, example of the opposite of that where they came out with All something. Right, bring it on, ready. <laughs> uh, well, I think you kind of know, but Weezer.
0: Yeah, easily. Weezer was, easily.
1: Weezer was something <laughs> like, that's a really good example, where first couple albums, really refreshing, really new. Then they kind of got, you know, really in the the mainstream consciousness. Then it kind of was It just like, got corny. ...downhill from there. Someone relatively recent who kind of... Well, actually, someone relatively recent who's been getting a lot more exposure, which I'm very happy he's been getting more exposure, is Anderson Pack, especially with that collaboration he's doing with Bruno Mars. I think that's going to put him on to a whole new audience of people that maybe he didn't have before. And I'm hoping that he keeps his integrity too, because personally, a lot of his stuff is really quite good and came through with that more. I'm not super uh, familiar with Anderson. So refresh me. Yeah. So Anderson pack basically came with this Neo soul, almost a, a Neo soul revival in a way. Um, so like Sampha, FKA Twigs, SZA? No, because those artists are more atmospheric and they're more... The internet? Yeah, more in that vein. The old school groove, like more like laid back, almost more feel good music.
0: Sure. And that But sense. not as over the top as Hiatus Coyote.
1: No, Hiatus Coyote does kind of like go that one step further. Yeah, they do. Yeah. And, and I mean like FKA Twigs, Sampha, cool. the, those guys are great and those artists are great. But like I said, they do factor into that atmospheric, eerie sound, especially like Sampha does. You have to be in like in a certain mood to really like resonate with that. Like, oh, Subtract, dude. I'm surprised we never talked about Subtract. Subtract? What?
0: Subtract has, I think he's worked with Sampha. Okay, I'll have to look into it. No, Subtract
1: is one of the illest I've ever listened to. Have you heard of, uh, have you heard of Division as an R&B artist? Maybe. Okay, that's similar... But we'll have to listen to that and then talk about
0: that in a future one. Yeah, definitely. We will touch a little bit on quality control before we
1: um, cut out. Yeah. Because
0: we got to talk about my man Marley on that. Definitely.
1: Well, quality control is a big factor in a lot of things. And Marley had such a illustrious career in having that quality control. And I think really the big thing that I can observe from listening to all those albums I think it's really who he surrounded himself with. I mean, Marley himself is still goaded, especially in the reggae field. But I think so much of it was your Tosh and so much of the other. Funny. Yeah. And so much of what the other whalers were doing. I've repeatedly said it, and I won't stop saying this, is
0: that Marley would have not gotten where he was without Livingston and Tosh. Oh, no, no question. Because they were essential. They were just like the Beatles. They were so essential for each other's growth and success. Even though Neville and Tosh, they kind of got the bad end of the stick.
1: Yeah, but I mean, Tosh still had a pretty good solo career after.
0: Yeah, but I don't know if it's true, but if we're going on rumors alone, he started the band. Yeah. And he even taught the guys how to play instruments. Right. Or at least the bulk of how to play an instrument. And then still ends up getting segmented out of his own band. I mean, I think he still made the decision to leave, he and Neville, but it got so big. And Catch a Fire, which super good album, because they had the Jamaican and the American version. Yeah. The Jamaican version didn't have like those electric guitar solo overdubs. Right. So it's a very different listen. But Catch a Fire, the American version, which was produced in the UK, I think. (laughs) Right. Right. It's just great. And by that point, Bob was really kind of because they actually recorded some stuff in the 60s in Jamaica and, yeah. and other places. But right. by the 70s the early 70s with Catch a Fire and uh, Burnin, both from 1973. Yeah. It got to that point where Bob was becoming a superstar. And yeah, Peter definitely didn't want to stick too much longer. And Bunny is usually the softer spoken of them. He's very well spoken in his music and very well expressed, but he doesn't come out as intensely as Peter does. Peter was like the gun of the group. Yeah. Bob was, I think, the overall message. And I think Bunny was just a great poet.
1: Yeah. Like they all had that, those different characters. But it all interlinked and it kind of all made sense. And it Peter's kind of like
0: John Lennon. And then Bob was you guessed it. Paul. Paul McCartney. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And Bunny's just a good mix of Ringo and the other guy, uh, Harrison. Harrison, yeah. yeah. Not to beatelize every band, right? Because everyone <laughs> but does I mean, that.
1: But I mean, no, no, this is a fair comparison. No, no, this is definitely a fair comparison, not only actually timeline-wise in terms of the fact that both of these styles of music were being made basically at the same time, mm-hmm. just in vastly different parts of the world, vastly different flavors, budget, whatever. Uh, may have you. I mean, I think the Beatles just had a ton more budget because they were the <laughs> No <laughs> right. question about it. Right. Um, so it's a fair comparison just because if you're going to compare those two, you know, Harrison, you're making that Harrison comparison. Harrison comparison. That's great. Um, that is generally how even people who are huge fans of the Beatles, like they do view it that way, where Harrison actually is really kind of underrated, at least from a songwriting standpoint. Within the Beatles, But that's just because the combination of Lennon and McCartney was so poignant that that's the only reason why Harrison became underrated in that band. Despite the fact that Harrison wrote some of the best songs like Something, for example, While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Some of the absolute best Beatles material was written by George Harrison. But because Lennon and McCartney as a team were so big on the charts and so big in in that whole thing, that's that's what happened. And I think Harrison got a lot more appreciation after he went solo, after the Beatles broke up. Same thing happened with Bunny. Yeah. Yeah. Because Harrison put out All Things Must Pass, which had, you know, like My Sweet Lord. Bunny
0: was the last one to die. He died uh, about a month or so ago really yeah bunny outlasted peter and bob by quite a while like by 40 years well i mean
1: bob had the cancer so i mean that was
0: bob had the cancer peter <laughs> peter got killed by someone actually ironically that he helped this dude out he helped him with the couch and i forgot what happened That's horrible. He, i think he was trying to rob peter Ugh. and uh he got killed that way oh, and then bunny was kind of like bob as far as like the peacemaking he kind of kept his own
1: But I just think that that's a fair comparison in terms of people who have contributed immensely to their respective bands, but at that of the prime of those bands, didn't quite get the recognition that they deserved or didn't really get their flowers until after the band was disbanded, Mm -hmm. and then they were able to kind of really showcase a lot of what they had to offer, and so that's why I thought that was a, a pretty fair comparison, and from a actual quality aspect too. You can compare the Beatles and the Whalers in the sense that they had multiple albums in a row that are They were just so good. Yeah, they can
0: yeah, consider Even if like you liked one album more than the other, correct. I could not say that one album was better.
1: Yeah. Same same. For both bands. Right, exactly. I mean in both of those bands too, you have like fan favorite as well as kind of like the generalist favorite. Like I'm gonna like Is it
0: lonely hearts or um or wow it's from 1970 i can't even remember the name let it be no well let it be is great but the one where they're all abbey road abbey road yeah see my yes. mind's just i can't no, you are good you're you're
1: fine Bar- i got gotcha.
0: you most people say that Sgt. Pepper is probably the greatest one of all time. Like if we put it on like a chart. Yes. But which is a fan favorite? Is it Abby or is it Sgt.? Because I feel like it's Abby.
1: I would say actually some of the records before might be considered fan favorites. I would say like. Re- sure. Fan favorites. Yeah. I would like Revolver say. Revolver or Rubber Soul or what? Yeah. Both of those. Revolver and Rubber Soul got a lot of love. Especially Rubber Soul because that kicked off a lot of things. Because the album before that, I believe, was the Help album or the Hard Day's Night album. I'm not sure which one it was. But Rubber Soul was kind of the start of the new Beatles. Right. And they're ushering in a new era. Correct. In terms of that cohesiveness, in terms of improved songwriting, in terms of more experimentation with different types of songs. Beatles 2.0, right? Yeah. (laughs) You know, um, George Harrison with the sitar on, you know, uh, Norwegian Wood is a great great example. Norway. Yeah, they're Indian influences. They're Far Eastern influence. And probably a lot of those albums were very much influenced by LSD. So let's just yes. not beat around the bush on that. But I'd say Revolver and Rubber Soul like got a lot of love. So did the White Album. The White Album is pretty highly regarded.
0: Um, am, I, am I allowed to like that album? I'm just kidding.
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. Yes, you can like the White Album, I think. <laughs>
0: yes you can then i then you
1: are allowed to like i can like metallica's black, black album. album that's right <laughs> i knew you're gonna do that's that. Cor- that is correct metallica's black album is actually getting remapped. but can we like weezer's blue album that's a very good question yeah that's well i mean one. i think we do we do like it because it's their best but we do like it because it's the best before they you know but i would say for the beatles it's definitely one of those in terms of the fan favorite is probably like revolver rubber soul the white album I mean, Abbey Road and Let It Be, especially like the re-edited version of like Let It Be, because the thing with Let It Be was that Phil Spector kind of came in and overproduced it in a lot of ways because he had like that whole wall of sound thing that he wanted to do. And a lot of the Beatles members were not exactly fond of it having that much production, especially for it being a very turbulent time for them. I mean, it's the album that kind of it was like their last kind of thing. But they had a stripped back version of Let It Be, which is really highly regarded where you can really hear a lot of the great songwriting going on. But I think the generalist favorite by far is probably like Sergeant Peppers or Abbey Road. True. Um, very much in the same way that I can probably say the generalist favorite of The Whalers might be Exodus. If you're not talking about... Yeah, yeah, If you're not talking about Legend, we're not talking about Legend because that really doesn't count. That's a compilation album. I know. And that's probably one of my biggest
0: gripes about these people that talk about Bob Marley. It's always legend. And I'm like, dude, it doesn't count. I actually know that someone doesn't listen to them. If most of the time, not all the time, but most people, I know they don't listen to them if all they can say is legend. And I'm like, I don't think you really listen to them.
1: But if you're talking about like individual albums outside of a compilation, I'd say the generalist favorite ha- probably is, is, Exodus. is probably Exodus. I
0: actually find Exodus to be really boring in comparison, but maybe that's because people prefer... Do you like Start a Fire or some of those other ones? Like Catch a Fire is amazing. Um, Kaya? Think, oh, So Kaya is my second favorite Whalers record and my ninth favorite record of all time. What's your first... Exodus by Andy Hunter by a different artist. Wow. From 2002. Yeah. He's um, a UK electronica and dance artist. Hmm. And that was his debut. And I I listened to that heavily when I was a kid. Nice. Very much like the likes of uh, The Prodigy, which The Fat of the Land, everyone talks about that record, which we can talk about another time. I really like Junkie XL. Junkie XL, yeah. Yeah. um, Uh Uh-huh. It was a Saturday Teenage Kick. Yep. So- I was listening to a lot of stuff from Saturday Teenage Kick without realizing I was listening to that album.
1: Yeah. And then
0: I got into Andy Hunter because that sound is very similar, that late 90s. Yeah,
1: that's like Fatboy Slim, oh, like yeah, Primal right? Scream, like all that kind of thing. Yeah,
0: and it's funny because a lot of these bands like Blur and all these other late 90s artists were using a lot of um, programmed sequences into rock. Oh, yeah, like Blur, yeah. Yeah, so that that's very similar. Yeah, because
1: um, that's kind of like the UK house thing. Like yeah. that's kind of like the big, like, yeah, UK house music. That Late
0: kind 90s, of... early aughts, the Darude Sandstorm era. Oh. But I liked it. <laughs> um, Moby. I don't listen to Moby that much, but- Oh, I, Moby, I, I like, yeah. I like that stuff. But bottom line, that's my favorite record. My second favorite is Catch a Fire by the Whalers. Yeah. And my third favorite is Nevermind.
1: Oh, Nirvana. Yeah. Cool. That's, that, that's a pretty solid lineup, I'd say, but... but- Catch a Fire and Kaya
0: are my two favorite Whalers records.
1: Right. But even though the generalist one definitely is probably is Exodus, is probably Exodus, no question. Exodus
0: is probably one of my least favorites. Go figure. But it's good for people who want to get used to him. I honestly think that album is really boring compared to the other ones, but it's good.
1: No, there's still some great. I mean, Waiting in Vain is fantastic. It's um, a bit over. It's not over overproduced. Like even Kaya has
0: a lot of reverb. It's really crispy. Lie. It's shiny, but the songwriting is more quirky. On Kaya? Yeah, it's not yeah. as conventional. When you listen to Exodus, the songs sound too predictable, and they lose me. They're good, but they lose me. Like Rasaman Vibration, that's such a good record. Natty Dread. Yeah, No, we, we'll, we'll talk about the Wailers sometime, but the quality control for the Wailers is pretty off the charts. The only area where I feel is kind of bad. And to be fair, I don't think, and I could be wrong, I don't think that Bob curated that album. Because this is that Confrontation album from 1983. Yeah. 1983 was two years after Bob passed. I don't know if he really curated Buffalo Soldier and all of those to be on the same record as these other songs that were on
1: Confrontation. Yeah.
0: And I think Confrontation is probably his least interesting, but I don't even know if he
1: even composed the track list. But that's almost like a whole discussion in terms of like the posthumous albums, like where people are curating and releasing material long after.
0: Well, that was, the, that was the one and the only studio, the first and the last studio record that I know was Posthumous with Bob. Right. But everything that he released while he was alive, yeah. it seems like he probably had a say on it.
1: From the 70s on,
0: Yeah, it's just consistently good.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the, the whole thing with the Posthumous thing, I mean, that, I think that's a topic as well that we cover in terms of Posthumous albums done well and Posthumous albums done really badly.
0: I think most aren't that good. Because it's a it's a bit, I think it's
1: a rarity because it's kind of exploitive. It's basically like <laughs> kind of. Yeah, uh, maybe not kind of. I think very exploitive is probably the answer, but it is very exploitive because you're basically riding on the fact that, hey, this artist is passed on, but it's still a familiar brand. It's almost like a remake of a movie where it's like, oh, good you good know, person. what? We, we, we know that name. We're going <laughs> to we're going to. Throw all the money at it. You love
0: this because it's the same name. That's brought to you by the people who aren't the people.
1: That's that's right, (laughs) and and that's why you hear like so many instances of people's estates being all mad about snippets or tracks being released. Jimi Hendrix's was kind of like a little bit anal. You love Hendrix,
0: but we're not Hendrix, right? But we're bringing you. Hendrix, right? But the estate—the way that we hear—but but the estate,
1: for, but the estate for a little while was a little anal in terms of what music was. Uh, so with Prince too, with a lot, well, yeah. yeah. But, but Prince, it's because he has so much music that's unreleased. A lot of it can just be a really easy cash grab from beyond the grave, grave robbing essentially. But there are some examples of posthumous either re-releasing or re-recording that's good. And if you want to talk about Bob. I always go to the collaboration thing that where they had Lauren Hill record with Bob Marley. They had the oh, yeah. like turn your lights down low, like that type of thing. I
0: respect Lauren, but some people that touch his compositions and try to rework it, I hate So
1: you didn't like the Lauren
0: Hill turn No, no, no no, on- no, no. I said I respect her. So because I respect her, I actually don't feel weird about her doing stuff with Bob. But yeah. Bob is one of those weird artists. I think more than a lot of other artists is probably one of the most misused and misunderstood. Yeah. Because they almost always oversimplify him to just like a doobie and that's it. Right. And it's like, dude, I don't even know if you even listen to the dude. In fact, you don't even understand him if you don't understand his band. And most people do not right. understand his band.
1: Right. And I think that's probably a big part why the, the Lauren Hill collaboration stands out in my head in terms of but like. She can hang with me. She's, she's like.
0: Yeah. Dude, we can even talk about her, her um, collaboration with Nas.
1: Oh, that yes. That was good. That was fantastic. We should have talked about it. Whoa. We can't. Let's talk about it. Oh, we we got a little bit of time. We Let's can do, do it. Let's it. do we, it. We can do it. Let's do it. Yeah. So that was fan- good. I wasn't even sure if you listened to that King's Disease record, but
0: I listened to only two tracks. But but it they were um but they were good.
1: The the Lauren Hill, what was the other one? Ah, uh, gosh, I can't remember. Yeah, you don't remember but there's a music video for it? Okay. Oh, rare, maybe that maybe it's the one.
0: But yeah, it oh, not- was rare. Was it the one with him playing chess? chess? That's the rare yeah, one. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, so that no, was good because it had that, all these different styles. That's right. No, Nas King's Disease 2 came out also on that last Friday, which I was hyped for. We'll do a whole 20 podcast for Nas. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, in terms of his contribution to hip hop, like, yeah, you can't condense that in one thing. Because I mean, Ilmatic alone could probably take up an episode of this, just in terms of um collaborators working with a tribe called Quest working with rock, working with DJ Premier, you know. So with Nas, do you ever get the vibe? Because I
0: feel this way all the time. Do you ever feel like he's dead and then you forget, oh, no, wait, he's alive? Because Uh, of the culture of a lot of hip-hop artists that...
1: Kind of. You know what I mean? Kind of. Because he almost feels like a fever dream whenever I hear that he's still alive. Kind of. I mean, I think that because he had kind of a lull period, because he had, you know, Illmatic huge...
0: This is my theory, but I'm I'm dead what? serious about this. I think that if Nas would have died after Illmatic, he would have been legendized even more.
1: Oh, absolutely. Which
0: goes to show how much absolutely romanticized dead artists.
1: Abs- absolutely. If he would no, if Illmatic would have been his only album, and he would have perished, like yeah, he would have. The album would have been way overblown than the way it is now because it's great.
0: But I'm saying if he died, yeah, it would have been blown even higher. Well, even yeah. higher than I you
1: No, know. it, it than it already has been. Yeah. I mean, Nas has already Easy, gone dude. on he's already gone on record so many times being like, I want to look past that. Like he's already said, like, you know, I have other albums too.
0: But, but you know how people are with stuff like that. They did it with Winehouse, they did it with all these artists, dude. Oh,
1: right. Sure. Elevating the status of that David Bowie actually. When David Bowie passed, that Black Star album got pushed up too. Yeah. Especially when people really started figuring out. That it was like literally about him dying and almost predicting his death before it was even coming to fruition. But people have the, the tendency to overrate just because someone died.
0: Right. It happens all the time. And Nas's Ilmatic would have gotten even higher than yeah. what it was. But I think it's a blessing that he's around. Absolutely. That he's been around this whole time. Absolutely it is. And guess... he's been able to live to see the impact that Ilmatic mm-hmm. and his just his mm-hmm. what he's done. And
1: personally, he's one of the few older hip-hop artists that sounds just as good over new production as the old production. That's the thing that I really liked about this King's Disease 2 record because I listened to pretty much a majority of the record. I think I only didn't listen to like two or three tracks on the back. What are some of your takes on it? It's really, really good. It's produced by Hip Boy, who's one of the biggest hip-hop producers right now. And it's really a nice blend of boom bap. Yeah, what a typical East Coast record from the 90s would have sounded like and the the boom bap and the jazz instrumentals. But then there's some instrumentals that are very modern and that don't feel out of place for today's rap scene. And I think that Nas has really kept his lyricism and his pen game up tremendously. The fact that his voice is so distinctive and that he can go with such authority over beats is kind of unparalleled and like i said he's one of the few older hip-hop artists that i can think of right now who sounds just as good like i said over modern production as he did on his older production he's
0: extremely hard to hate i've even noticed people who don't even like hip-hop yeah they find it you really have to hard respect to hate the dude
1: Because he's just so good, lyrically and whatnot. In the same way, I kind of felt very similarly with this King's Disease 2 album as I did with the last Jay-Z album, which was 444. Which Jay-Z had a really good balance of that too, because Jay-Z and Nas coming out at the same time. You know, both East Coast rappers, both tremendous influence in the game. Granted, Jay-Z had a lot more popularity through the 2000s than Nas did.
0: Nas is someone I could kick it with. I don't feel like I could do that with Jay-Z.
1: No, because I think it's probably that billionaire status with Jay-Z that you're like, you're out of reach now.
0: Jay-Z is a little bit like Eminem to me. Like, you know what I mean? Like, they almost feel like... But Jay-Z didn't fall
1: off so hard. Eminem kind of... Right. Eminem kind of dropped. And Eminem dropped mostly because of production and the way that he changed his flow, like the sound of his flow... Is mostly what made him fall off. His actual technical ability is still really good. His technical ability and his wordplay is still good. I mean, I know some people say that his his wordplay is, you know, really cheesy now, but his technical ability to rap over beats, he's on the Nas record actually, and he has a pretty good feature on it. But I think that's the reason that M kind of fell off was because M, and especially in the early career with that zany, but like still confident flow that he had. I think that was really a big reason why he had so much staying power as, you know, rap artist aside from his co-sign from Dr. Dre. That's probably why he got a ton of respect out the gate was because Dre co-signed on his record. And so they're like, OK, well, we have to listen to it because he's co-signing on it. And I kind of missed that. And M just got like too serious with his flow. Like, Like, I feel like he's overcommitted. He's trying too hard. I feel like if he just relaxes a little bit. Oh,
0: yeah. He would loosen up and it would just sound more natural instead yeah. of kind of a bit. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, sounds it sound almost too, um, like much on a track. Yeah. Cause he has like this kind of flow where everything kind of sounds like this over yeah, things yeah, and everything. And it's like, where he in a way becomes a parody of himself.
1: Yeah. And it's just like, I don't, I don't like that so much. If he just gets out of that a little bit and has more of that tongue in cheek thing, I think that he could potentially, um, you know, still be. Okay, I'm always going to respect him because whether you like him or hate him, he's the greatest selling hip-hop artist of all time. Numbers-wise, even Drake can't touch that in terms of <laughs> what, em- what Eminem's done. Sales-wise, there's no doubt, and on a technical level, Drake can't touch him either but it's just more of like... Oh, not even close. No, it's not even... (laughs) No, no. dude. It's no comparison. (laughs) It's no comparison. They're completely different. It's no comparison. (laughs) But Nas is, like I said, really great just because he kept a lot of what was true to himself on those early records paired with the modern production to make it more updated, but still have that kind of boom-bap jazz thing. Nas, I put him in the likes of like
0: dilla tribe called quest kendrick you know what i mean like artists that i really just can just chill with oh yeah definitely there's something about those artists that's very hard to put a finger on but
1: it's I like mean, you know I, I, I mean i'm gonna I, I go on record saying that jay dilla is the greatest hip-hop producer of all time i mean you yeah. wouldn't be refuted at all no well maybe by a few nerds some people would say dr dre i'm like no uh-uh 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 dilla's on a someone say dr dre some would say timbaland some would say Swiss Beats. I'm like, no. That's Scott Storch. <laughs> ah, no.
0: Oh, my gosh. We'll have to talk about him. I want to hear what you want to say about him. Scott
1: Storch, bro. <laughs> Scott Storch was the man in the early 2000s, in the mid-2000s. He was the man. Like, he couldn't do any wrong. Like, everything he touched <laughs> was a certified hit. The man had so many hits. But then he couldn't keep track of his money, and then he, I've seen his producing videos recently, and uh, he's kind of stuck. I feel like he's kind of stuck. Like, I respect the dude. He was the original keyboardist for The Roots, which is one of the best hip-hop bands mm-hmm. ever. Yeah. And he was the original keyboardist for them. And he always has my respect because of that. But... I feel like, especially the recent producing, I'm just like, nah, man. I feel like this is stuck a little bit too much in the 2000s, which honestly might come back around to benefit him, especially if this nostalgia for the aughts keeps going. It's already happened with the pop punk thing. It's only a matter of time. Oh my gosh. Can you imagine if bling rap comes back?
0: Dude, can you believe that we're in a time where they've meshed punk, pop punk, namely with trap? Like oh like the MGK thing isn't that just think about it like if someone came to you like hey dude they're gonna mesh these two together you'd be like you're crazy
1: well yeah but I Can mean you believe M- that it's yeah just, no MGK is doing that and I don't know I just I still feel Rodrigo like, not so much but MGK really did that a lot and I I think that's probably why I can't get into MGK all other no
0: they're always talking like this and they're like all oh, their songs it's kind of weird. Well, vocally I don't think. Some of it's cool but I think a lot of it's a miss. I don't think
1: MGK has the vocal chops either to be honest with you. And you can hear those heavy that heavy processing on He the just mic. Does, he does I mean he's trying really hard and I know some trying people trying really hard <laughs> Well, he he did that after Eminem bodied him on a diss track. Oh Eminem gosh. bodied MGK so hard that he switched genres. He's like, you know, I can't do this anymore. I can't be a rapper anymore. I don't think I Eminem spent five minutes dissecting my entire career and my entire existence in the rap genre. I'm going to switch over because I can't recover from this. Like, that's what he did. No question. Switching over is much easier than apologizing. <laughs> And and on that note, let's just leave it right there. <laughs> All right, y'all. So this has been another great edition of the WorkTape Podcast. We got some great topics coming, posthumous albums, quality control, more music news, more music recommendations. I'm Mitchell Palmer, Isaac Grover, WorkTape Podcast. Stay tuned. Later guys.